Okay, we're jumping in, appropriately so, to Psalm 23. This often quoted passage, probably the most quoted scripture in the whole Bible. And so, you know, changing the emotional tone here for a minute, let me, let me do a little survey in this room. And th- this isn't a trick question. I'm not, you're not in trouble for any of this. Um, but let me do a little survey in the room. I'm going to name some musicians, and you tell me if you have ever intentionally listened to one of their songs. Uh, so no, no judgment here. Um, all right, Duke Ellington. Okay, we got the classy people here. Um, Eminem. Oh, we got the honest people here. <laughs> Pink Floyd. The Grateful Dead. I can smell the, uh, the essential oils coming in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> U2. Coolio. <laughs> Kanye West. Jay-Z, Megadeth, Johann Sebastian Bach. Now, what do these people have in common, and why am I bringing them up here in church? Well, the reality is that they don't have much in common, but they do have this in common. They are among at least the 65 musicians that I found, and there's probably more, who quote Psalm 23 in some part of their song. This psalm has been quoted in more movies, more songs, more Hallmark cards with little cute sheep than than probably any other scripture. If you go to the neighborhood and the friends that I grew up with, I'm sure you could find Psalm 23 tattooed on the back of every third person. Psalm 23 is so popular that David should be getting, he should be getting uh, like, like paid for how many royalties for how much people are using his lyrics. And so most of us, even if you've never read the Bible, you have a sense of what t- Psalm 23 is about. And because of the fact that it is so common, so quoted, we can often view it through the lens of the, the, the sort of sentimental cheap lens in which it's often quoted, and not see it for the depth that it is. This isn't David writing the inside of a Hallmark card. This is David writing out a prayer to God, seeing him as his provider and his shepherd in the good times and the bad times. And there's so much in here that we could literally do 30 sermons on Psalm 23 alone. And I'm not going to do that right now. I'm not going to do 30 sermons in a row. But I just want to draw one big thing out of this text, one big idea. And it's that God is present with us in the shade and the shadows. The shade, the cool grass, the cool waters that it talks about in the beginning of the psalm, verses 1 through 3. The good parts, the good things in life. And there are the seasons of life when we are flourishing, we're enjoying the good things that are from the hand of the Lord, socially and spiritually and physically. And we need to know, like David knows, that those come from God. But then towards the latter half of the the psalm, verses 4 and 5, 
It talks about the valley of the shadow of the death. It has this idea of the, the darkness of the world, the pain, the, the danger, the potential of death. And those are real parts of our world as well. And David sees God as the good shepherd extending his presence in the midst of the chaos and the pain as well. So what we should get out of this prayer of David, this psalm of David, is that God is present with us in both the shade and the shadows. So let's open up our Bibles and let's take a look at verse 1 through 3 and let's talk about the shade, God's presence in the shade. It says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, as you're reading this, you should get the sense of, of flourishing, of comfort, of the good life. Of, of the things that are good, true, and beautiful in the world, and that those are coming from the hand of the Lord. David doesn't see these things as the fruit of his own effort, his own wisdom, his own leadership, but as extended generously from God. And he uses this metaphor of the relationship between a sheep and a shepherd to describe the providential, caring relationship between God and his people. Verse 1 is, is very interesting because of the words that are used in here. On one hand, where it says, uh, call, he, David calls God the Lord. And the Lord is the word Yahweh, the, the holy covenant name of Israel that carried the connotation of God's absolute grandeur, his hugeness, his glory, that God was so holy that the people would not even speak the name of Yahweh. They wouldn't even say it verbally. And it has this, this massive, huge, holy God. But then in the same verse, it says, he's my shepherd. And this is probably the most intimate, humble name that God is given in, in the Psalms. You see, these days we don't have a lot of shepherds walking around, at least in my neighborhood. We don't have shepherds in my neighborhood, maybe in yours. But the shepherds are, you know, in that day, they're different connotation. Today, that's kind of nostalgic. It's kind of poetic. But the way the original hearers would have heard that is not that way at all. A shepherd was a blue-collar worker who was getting dirty, was, 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 was working with his hands. And so it would be similar to this. It would be similar to if, if it was written today, if it said, God the sovereign, holy, righteous one whose name is so holy that we can't even speak it is my plumber. He deals with my sewage. Like that's how it would hit them. It has this sense of both God's transcendence and his imminence that he comes near and he gets dirty in, in our lives. Now, the David is drawing this metaphor from his vocational knowledge, his vocational experience. He was a shepherd, and he was accustomed to uh, walking with sheep, guiding sheep. He knew the work of a sheep, of a shepherd, and he knew the lives of sheep. And he's drawing upon his vocational knowledge to, to see this metaphor of humans, uh, people's relationship with God. 
Now, what's really interesting is this often gets overlooked, but this is kind of poetic, a little artistic. David's writing a psalm from the perspective of a sheep, right? The Lord is my shepherd. He's, he's basically looking through the eyes of a sheep or, and seeing God as a shepherd. So it's a really rich metaphor. But what does God do as a shepherd? In verse 2 and 3, it says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, this describes four actions that God is doing as a shepherd. First of all, it says he leads me beside still waters, and, or he le- makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Now, a lot of times when I've read this in the past, I, I've kind of not known exactly what to do with the, with the language. The language kind of sounds aggressive, like he makes me lie down in, in green pastures and, and still waters. And, and this isn't language of domination. This is language of provision. See, if you're a shepherd, you know what sheep are like and how important this is. See, here's the deal. Sheep are dumb. They're dumb. They are very dumb. Jason Raber, who's one of the pastors here, he owned a sheep. Past tense, owned. Last week, he owned a sheep. And, and, and he, uh, the, the, the interesting thing with sheep is that they don't know exactly what they should eat. They'll just eat whatever's green in front of them. Uh, and uh, he was in someone's backyard, and while he was in that backyard, the sheep decided to snack on some oleanders. And oleanders are poisonous, and... Mary no longer has a little lamb. Like, done. Um, And sheep are not intelligent. When I was living in Turkey, I read this in the news, and then I read it in Turkish news and then verified it with the BBC because I could not believe this happened. There were 1,500 sheep that were walking along a field one day. And there were like... The first 10 of them fell off the side of a cliff. They were just walking and fell off the side of a cliff, just dropped, hit the bottom. But sheep are so accustomed to following each other blindly that 1,500 sheep went over the edge and fell off of a cliff. Can you imagine a shepherd coming upon that saying, what happened? 1,500 sheep. Now, fortunately, only 450 of them died because they created this pillow <laughs> for all the other sheep uh, to, to catch them as they fell. So the point is, sheep are not smart. They are dumb animals. Um, here's the deal. We're sheep, right? How often do we put ourselves into situations which are not good for us, which do not honor God, which are, are frankly foolish, and everyone around us knows it. But God providentially guides the sheep to the green grass, not to the oleanders. Left up to our own devices and our own intelligence and wisdom, we would be toast. But God, working his grace in our life, is the one who has led us into every green pasture of life, every rich friendship you have, every good work you've done, every every good food you've tasted, every 
uh, vacation you've enjoyed, every good song you've heard has been God as the good shepherd guiding you into that because apart from him, you would guide yourself into oleanders and off cliffs. And so when it says he makes me lie down in green pastures, this is God providentially putting sheep in the place that is best for them. Now, then it says still waters. He leads me beside still waters. And I know that we like to, to play up the poetic nature of that and then these peaceful sheep or they're walking up to the, to the waters. But the deal was this was an important part of the vocation of a shepherd. See, because again, sheep being dumb, if, there's, if there are rapids, so many sheep in those days would walk up to the water to go get a drink and then they're just taken down the river. They're just river rafting and gone. So the shepherd would have to lead the sheep to the still waters, the place where they could go and they could drink. And this is what God does for us. You see, every good, true, and beautiful aspect of our life has come from God. He's the one extending it. He's the one restoring our soul. He's the one leading us into paths of righteousness. And the word righteousness in, this, in the Bible isn't like what you think of when it says righteous, like kind of like prudish, stoic, just don't smoke and don't do bad things and stuff. But righteousness was this holistic engagement with God and your neighbors, the pursuit of justice. So even in the good things we do, the good things we think, the good attitudes we have and the good things we experience, God is the shepherd behind it all, sovereignly leading us away from the oleanders and to the still waters. And, and, and it's easy for us as humans to, to look at the good times and to not see God present in the good times, present in the cool and refreshing place of shade. But here's what James 1.17 says. It says that every good gift, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights from whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The God who has existed for all of eternity has been the one since day one who has given every single good gift you have ever experienced. And our human propensity for arrogance because of our sin is to say, my successful work comes from my hard work, but it actually comes from the work of Christ. It's to say that my spiritual vitality or victory over sin comes from my discipline but it comes from the fact that Jesus was disciplined as he moved to the cross and made us right with God. We're the people who say that my comfortable home is because I have earned it, but it's because God has made a home for us through Christ. And our friendships that we enjoy are because of our charming personalities, but it's because of the friendship of Christ who's working his common grace into the world. And if you have ever come across anything that's good, even when you don't acknowledge it or know it, the rod and the staff of the good shepherd is the one leading you there and extending that to you. So how do we cultivate an, under, an awareness of God's presence as sheep wandering around when we're experiencing good things? We need to develop a childlike prayer life of meticulous gratitude. I mean, if you have ever been around a child when they're first learning to pray and stuff like that, it can be pretty meticulous. They like to name everything. They said, thank you, God. 
for my brother. Thank you, God, for my cousin. Thank you, God, for my second cousin. Thank you, God, for tacos. Thank you, God, for the avocados and the tomatoes inside of the tacos. Thank you, God, for my socks, my left one, my right one, all of the socks that are in my drawer. And if you've ever prayed with a little kid like that, if you're being really honest, you could be like, hurry it up. God knows what's in a taco. <laughs> but there's something about that type of faith that is a very good practice for us. Because every moment, like just the moment, just right now, the mere fact that a roof is not caving in on our heads is more grace than we would ever deserve. And the meticulous gratitude of a child first learning to pray should be the meticulous gratitude that we have as we look out into the world with wonder and see God leading us to the green pastures and the still waters that we experience. Can you see the soft bed you lay down at night as God's, as the still waters that the good shepherd is leading you by? Can you see the cheesy lasagna as the green grass of God? Can you see your kind friendships, your spiritual vitality, your restful nights, your good vacations as gifts from the shepherd? Because he is present with us even in the good things. And, and we have a tendency to only acknowledge him in the hard things and in the pain. And so, but that, that's the point I want to address next. Number two, that God is with us in the shadows, in the hard times. But before I jump into it, I want to get you guys discussing. Like I did this last time a few weeks ago, and I kind of liked it. So I want to ask you a question. I'm going to give you a few minutes to talk about it and to discuss it, and then I'm going to come back and lead us. Here's the question. What are people most afraid of other than death? So go ahead and discuss that with a few other people, meet them, then get into the heavy stuff, and then I'll bring us back in a moment. Okay, let's go ahead and bring our discussion to a close. I'm not going to ask you to holler it out because those would be kind of weird things to just yell out across a room. But we know, all of us, we carry a, a sense that just around every corner there are some dark things. That, that there's 
the loss of a job or, or um, conflict with a loved one or uh, feeling shame from something that happens in your job. Uh, there are a number of things, your children's struggles, that, that we can be afraid of. And David experiences those things as well. He knows what the valley of the shadow of death is like. He knows the dark times. Even though he was so close to God that it said that he was a man that was after God's own heart, he was a, a, God, he was a sheep following a shepherd through the valley of the shadow of death. So let's look here at verse 4 and 5. It says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So, so what is going on here with this idea of the valley of the shadow of death? This is, a, this is poetic language, and it's probably describing something that in the Middle East is called a wadi. It's like a, a valley uh, that had these, these high ridges that would cast these long shadows as it was getting dark. And it, they were scary places because as you were walking through them, you could be taken out by a flash flood. There were predatorial animals that lived uh, in, in those valleys. And, and there were also people, like unsavory characters, who would hide in those ravines and would, would jump out and, and, and steal things and harm people. And, and like that's where the gangs hung out, essentially, in the, the Middle East. And the shepherd, oftentimes, as he was leading the sheep, would have to go through these valleys and lead sheep through the valley. And David knew what it was like to go through a, a, a valley. He knew what it was like to, to have his children die. He knew what it was like to have assassination plots always going after him. He knew what it was like to experience the shame of moral and vocational failure. He knew what it was like to have sexual abuse in his family. He knew the dark times. And he still sees God and his presence walking with us through the very dark times. This, this valley of the shadow of death. This, this, this place that was filled with tremendous potential danger. Friends, this is life. Life has the good stuff, the shade. But it also has the shadows because of sin. And sometimes as sheep, it is necessary that we walk through these valleys and we do not take comfort because we just tell ourselves that everything is going to be okay. Because it's not. We grew up as kids. My family, we used to tell each other, oh, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. We were lying to each other. Death happens. Pain happens. It's not always okay. These things, these wolves, these flash floods, these, these robbers, they were all real things. Why was the sheep able to say, I don't fear? I'm comforted. It's not because the trials weren't there. It's because of the presence of the shepherd. The presence of the shepherd. It wasn't the absence of pain, but the presence of the shepherd. And the sheep know that when my shepherd is around, my shepherd has a rod and a staff. And they're there to guide me. But also, 
when, when a wolf or a coyote or something like that comes, it's time to get down. And the sh- shepherd stands in front of the sheep and will defend the sheep, will fight for the sheep, will put himself in harm's way for the sake of the sheep. And that is your good shepherd. That is your good shepherd who stands in the way of the pain on your behalf and fights for you on your behalf. And your shepherd was enveloped, was taken in by death. Your shepherd is not a generic shepherd. Your shepherd has a name. If you know him, and his name is Jesus. And here's what he said to us. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See, see, we don't have any comfort in this world because there are, there is danger, there is pain, unless we have a shepherd to defend us who will take us for all of eternity and be the one who's near to us and and make his shade and his green grass eventually envelop the wholeness of the earth. But until that time comes, the comfort that we have is that we are with him and he entered into our pain and he experienced it with us. We don't know exactly what God is doing in the midst of your pain right now why there's a cancer diagnosis, why your child is walking away from the Lord, why it looks like you're going to lose your job. God doesn't give us the answer, but he gives us himself present in the valley with us. As T.F. Torrance says, he says, God does not offer any explanation for evil, but deals decisively and finally with it by entering himself into its abysmal chasm, separating us from him and bridging it through the atoning life and death of his incarnate son, that Jesus gives us a way out of the valley through his life, death, and resurrection. And until the day comes that suffering ends, he will be with us in the midst of it, and he'll be with us for all of eternity. But then what happens here is David changes metaphors. So he's mixing metaphors. Ricardo He's always mixing metaphors, love him for it, but frankly, it's biblical, so he's good to go. David mixed metaphors, Ricardo mixed metaphors, I mix metaphors, so it's a biblical thing, give us a break. Um, but, but he now moves into the metaphor of a host, a host welcoming someone at the dinner table and saying, come sit with me, eat with me. Let's read what it says. It says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now, what's happening here? What's the deal with oil in the Bible? Do you ever wonder that? It seems like they're slathering oil over everything. <laughs> like anointing your head with oil. If someone tried to anoint my head with oil, I, don't know, I wouldn't know what to do. They just like put some olive oil and just put it on my forehead or something like that. So, but oil is very symbolic and practical in the Bible. It's symbolic of God's holiness. It's symbolic of abundance. But also it had a very practical purpose for the sake of hospitality that in the ancient Near East, when someone would come into your home and they've been on a long journey and they had chapped lips and dry skin, the oil was a way of refreshing them. It was like giving them a massage and giving them some lotion and some, some just, you know, essential oils just to get, like, refreshed from the journey. 
Because hospitality was very important in the ancient Near East. As someone would enter your house, you were responsible for providing for them and protecting them, even at the cost of your own life. And David sees God as the host, welcoming him into relationship, sitting down and feasting with him and saying, you're under my care, I protect you. I'm the one who brings about uh, your, your joy and your, your flourishing and your nearness to me. Now, then there's this image of the cup overflowing. You know, God being so generous that he just keeps dumping more and more wine into David's cup and it's just spilling out all over the place. Imagine uh, extravagance and an excessive meal is what it's trying to get a hold. Imagine that you are, are having a feast And someone just keeps putting steak after steak, filet mignon after filet mignon, bringing about the best ice cream. They bring you some crepes, and then they bring out the bacon, and it's awesome. And they're just, your milkshake is overflowing. They just keep, you can take a drink, they pour more milkshake in it. It's extravagant, it's sloppy. And that's the kind of lavish love that God is extending to us, relationally, to be with us, to be present with us, even in the midst of shadows. You get the sense that David is calm and collected, even though enemies are all around him, that his life is in danger, he's experiencing peace. You see, in the ancient Near East, they used to have this military thing that they would do, this strategy that sometimes you would throw a huge party the night before a battle, and you would do it within earshot of your enemies. So, you know, the milkshake's overflowing, you're you're yelling, you're having a good time and everything. Your enemy hears you and says, they're not scared. They're going crazy with the milkshakes over there. I mean, that's that's the image that, that it would have. But what David is saying is that even in the presence of danger and death, I can peacefully sit and have fellowship with a God who's my shepherd but also my friend. Also my father who says, sit with me. He doesn't go kill all the enemies right then, but he does prepare a feast in the presence of enemies. And so I'm asking, I want to ask you, what are are the things that are the shadowy parts of your life? These scary, terrifying, painful things. God is not saying that he's going to solve them here and now. One day he eventually will. But in the meantime, he's inviting you to sit with him and and feast with him and let him comfort you in the midst of them. Now, I want to share something. I want to share something from my own life, a few ways that I've struggled with this. Um, One of them is sort of a fruitful story. The other one, eh, I'm working on it. The first one is, after 9-11, I was like the most terrified person in the world. I was really scared. And I had this attitude of just saying, we want to, let's go carpet bomb the Middle East, keep all the Muslims out. And some people confronted me and said, you are not sensing the presence of the good shepherd. You're not calling on him. You're trying to protect yourself. You're not depending on him. And so God in his sovereign irony basically calls me to repent and to go meet some Muslim folks and befriend them. And I move into this neighborhood and I am befriending Muslims and I begin to really care for them. And then God calls us to move to Turkey. And on this trip that we take, this little vision trip before we go to Turkey, I feel like I've dealt with my fear 
of, of, of terrorism, of something that could happen to us. Uh, this is two weeks after I'm married, by the way, which just some free marriage advice. Don't take a trip overseas without your wife two weeks after you're married. That's dumb. But especially to where I went, it was a very dangerous part of Turkey where Iran and Iraq and Turkey meet. And 3,000 PKK terrorists had been flushed out of Iraq and Iran into that little corner of Turkey. And we were there to kind of have a vision about maybe we should go there, maybe we should do some work there. And I was honestly scared. I was the team leader, and I was pretending like I wasn't scared, but I was scared out of my mind to be there. And we ended up hanging with these guys, and my fear started to go away a little bit. We met them. We played soccer with them. We eventually went back to to share a meal with them, and they were making... Food, and then we realize, we start looking at the propaganda on the wall. We realize we are now in the living room of PKK insurgents slash terrorists, depending on who's defining it. And we're wondering, are we about to be abducted? Is this our last meal that we're about to eat? And it wasn't, they st- obviously it wasn't, I'm still here, but <laughs> it gives away the story. But we start sharing a meal with them, and they start telling us about the, the hardships that they've had and that they as a people, as Kurdish people, have been a sheep without a shepherd. And they start singing this song about being a people with a sheep without a shepherd. And in that moment, all of us, we were silently praying and wanting God to be present with us because we were scared. And he emboldened us. And we told them, there is a, she- a shepherd who is the shepherd of you and your people if you will follow him. His name is Jesus. He's the good shepherd. And we proclaimed the gospel in that room. And we had the opportunity to sing to them some hymns about Jesus as the good shepherd. I mean, we sung really poorly, but they really, they were, they were moved to tears. And we were praying for them, and there were tears that were being shared. And God was present, literally preparing a feast for us in the presence of our enemies and giving us an opportunity to, to promote the gospel. Well, I... I I was deeply comforted and was used to now seeing God's presence in the midst of this stuff. But when we finally moved to Turkey, a few weeks after being there, my wife and I were on a, we were doing a date night, and we literally, oh, we were walking on this bridge, and a bunch of people were running the other way, and we're like, hey, is there like a soccer game going on? We didn't know what was going on. And then some guy looks at us, and he says, bomba, like bomb. So we run off the bridge, and it turns out there was a bomb on that bridge that we almost walked right on. And we saw God as the good shepherd who, depending on the timing, we could have walked right on to that bomb. And over the years, uh, even when we were in Turkey, some, some folks that we knew of were, were, were killed, were martyred there. Um, but over the years, we've become pretty comfortable. We've gone from being the people who were terrified after 9-11 and didn't want to leave the house to people who see the presence of God even in potential real danger. Well, this last, or like two years ago, long story, I wish I could tell it to you. I'll tell it to you another time, but this is the first time I've shared this publicly about this happening. Our church has done some really wonderful work with the Uzbek community, and it has been great, but because of it, I'm now A, banned from Uzbekistan, and I started receiving death threats from Uzbek nationalists who were were basically saying they were going to harm me, going to harm my family, and this was right before Christmas. And let me tell you this, my friends, maybe one of the best Christmases we ever had. We feasted. We, We exchanged gifts. We remembered Jesus. And we were concerned, 
but we sense the presence of the Lord even in the midst of enemies. And we're, we're at peace. We were comforted. And God grew us in that. But lest you think that I'm something, let me tell you where I'm struggling. Because I realize I am not inviting God or looking for the presence of God in all aspects of my life. There's one aspect in particular that keeps me awake at night, that, that I struggle with, and it's this, that I'm, I'm a not, I am not very educated. So I have never graduated from anything, not college, not high school, not junior high, not Boy Scouts, even when my friends, we, you know, pretended and played as kids that, you know, we were graduating, I had to, like, stand to the side. Like, I have never graduated from anything. My highest education is a GED. I struggle with dyslexia. Um, I, sh I struggle with uh, ADD, ADHD, and other learning, uh, you know, disabilities. But, you know, I wasn't paying attention, so I forgot what they were. Um, but I, I struggled in school profoundly. And I've always had this fear that, like, I'm going to end up on the streets, that I'm not going to be able to provide for my family. And I've struggled to work with God through that. And it sticks with me to this day. Like, honestly, I wonder sometimes, like, you know, if, if my fu funding for the other half of my job surge will go away and I won't be able to provide for my family or who will give me a job. Or, frankly, like, you know, the irrational thoughts, but, like, the government will say I can't be a pastor anymore or something like that. You know, irrational stuff. But it gets me late at night looking for, for jobs and saying, could I get that? Could I get that? It gets me looking for like diploma mills and like, you know, little vocational schools and stuff like that. And honestly, I struggle with the fear of not being able to provide for my family and one day wondering who will hire me, you know, that sort of thing. And I'm realizing that I, the reason why I struggle so deeply is that I don't view that as a valley of the shadow of death. I view that as, as something else. Like God is present in the deaths, in the, in, the, in the cancer. But that stuff, that's not a big deal. But to me it is. It's this low-grade valley of the shadow of death that I struggle with and need to bring to the Lord. And you have those too. So many of us, we don't sense the presence of the Lord in our pain because we think our pain isn't big enough for God to care. But those who are struggling with chronic pain tension in marriage, even if it's not leading to divorce, or you look at your bank account and you're concerned, or you see your child struggling in school, these are the valleys and the shadowy places that God wants to meet you in. And so as I close, I just want to give you one prayer practice. You know, in the Psalms, we're trying to teach you uh, different ways of praying and engaging with God. So there's one prayer practice I want to share with you that you can do to help you identify um, God's presence in the place of pain, much like David did as he looked back on his life. And it's called autobiographical prayer. So basically, go into various eras of your life and retell your story to God before the presence of God. But this time, recognize where was God during that era? What was God doing? And how was he shaping me? And also, how was God feeling about the pain that I was experiencing or the joy that I was experiencing? But if there's a, a neuroscientist who uh, is a Christian, he talks a lot about how our memories are, are shaping these, these neuropathways every time, but every time you remember 
a memory, it gets reshaped. And the, the truth of the matter is that God was present in those moments. So we can go back and we can pray and, and look for the presence of God. And as those neural pathways are being reshaped, that's what I think the Apostle Paul is talking about when he says to renew your mind. So, so do that. See how God was present in the places of pain. One way you can do that is by remixing Psalm 23. Just take the format of Psalm 23 and write your own psalm. You know, it won't be included in the scripture or anything, but it'll be your prayer to God. And let me, let me just close by sharing with you how I've done that, how I've remixed Psalm 23 as a guy with ADD, dyslexia, only a GED, and yet every day God in his, or every week, God in his sovereign providence has me teaching in multiple settings. <laughs> I was the guy who couldn't learn. Now God sovereignly has me teaching where I'm the least educated guy in every room teaching multiple times a week, often to people who are like PhDs and stuff like that. But that's not because of anything I've done. It's because of what God has done. And here's how I've reimagined what God has been doing over the years. Psalm 23, remix. It says, The Lord is my teacher. I shall not trust in a degree. He shows me the good, the true, and the beautiful. He leads me into truth. He is my credential, the letters behind my name. Even though I have a GED in the aristocracy of education, I will not fear the ravines of ADD and dyslexia, for you guide me. Your, ways, your words and your ways, they form me. You prepare a desk for me in the presence of PhDs. You anoint my head with insight. My library overflows. Surely your wisdom and presence shall follow me into every book, classroom, and complicated subject. And I will dwell in the classroom of the Lord forever. And I've been thinking about and praying about how God has been present in every sentence that I struggled over, or every book that I had a hard time reading, or, or, or my struggles with getting language mixed up and all those sorts of things. And he was David Shepherd, and he was my teacher. And he may be your surgeon or your father or your designer. But regardless of what that is, God has been present in every era in our life. Both the refreshing times of shade and the dark times of the shadows. So look back and see him there. Let's pray. Father, I just um, I thank you for everyone in this congregation and in this room and the reality that you uh, that you've created them, you've intentionally created them, you, you love them profoundly, you provide for them, you protect them. You are the good shepherd for them. And God, we pray that you would, uh, in this room, be restoring souls and walking near and leading to the, the grassy pastures and the refreshing waters. But Lord, we also know that there are people who are in the valley of the shadow of death, who are surrounded by pain and enemies and fear, something uh, that is just really taking over their mind right now. And God, we pray for them that they would be able to have a feast with you, even in the presence of danger and pain and struggle. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.